Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our briefing this afternoon. My name is Carol Werner, and I am the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. As you all know, we've held a number of briefings uh, with regard to the climate negotiations, uh, as well as energy policies and energy technologies over the past years, and certainly uh, this year as we have followed uh, the ratification process of uh, coming out of Paris, uh, out of the Paris Agreement uh, a year ago, we have tried to make sure that through our climate change news that comes up weekly to keep people updated with regard to what was happening, with regard to the actions of countries uh, pursuant to this international Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, and, and this fall, uh, we have had a recently concluded uh, conference of parties uh, that was held in Marrakesh, Morocco, which then dealt with implementation issues coming forward as countries really wrapped themselves in terms of the implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement. What we think is also incredible is how quickly nations of the world move together to ratify the protocol so that it could come into uh, ratified the Paris Climate Agreement so that it could come enter into force uh, on November 4th uh, so that it was in force uh, during the uh, Conference of Parties, the, the COP uh, that was held in Marrakesh. This is really, really important to understand the urgency that these governments of the world are seeing with regard to the need to move on climate change as people increasingly around the world are seeing the impacts, they are well versed in the science and in terms of looking at now what are the best tools that are available in terms of dealing with both mitigation as well as adaptation to the impacts that are already being felt in so many ways and across so many sectors and in so many countries. And in addition to that, Countries and cities, states, provinces also are finding the need to make themselves much more resilient to these factors that they are seeing. And as I think we all have learned in terms of looking at the kinds of changes that are underway, that we are seeing how they impact across societies, across sectors, and of course on this globe, we really are all very much tied to each other and dependent upon each other in many ways. So to give us a peek into what happened at Marrakesh, what really came out of this whole gathering in terms of this conference of parties to help uh, with the initial implementation of the Paris Climate Agreement, we feel very, very grateful to have uh, Krista Artuzio with us, who is the Director of the Office of Global Change at the U.S. State Department. Krista's office is charged with handling the international climate negotiations on behalf of the Department of State and on behalf of the U.S. government. And this is the team that also manages U.S. assistance to support countries in reducing their emissions and increasing their resilience and their ability to adapt. The office works under the leadership also of the climate envoy, Dr. Jonathan Pershing. So I am delighted to welcome for this discussion, Christo Martuzio. Thanks a lot, Carol, um, and thanks to everybody for coming. Um, I see a lot of familiar faces here, so thanks to those of you uh, for showing up again. Um, uh, so some of what I say, uh, for those of you who have heard me talk uh, before, um, may be a little bit repetitive, but I wanted to just start with some of the basics um, to make sure that everybody uh, has, has a broad sense of what took place uh, both in Paris as the precursor to this meeting and also uh, in Marrakesh and what's, what's scheduled to happen um, over the next couple of years. So um, let me just start with a little bit of background about the Paris Agreement, which uh, was negotiated last year, um, just because I think there's been a lot of conversation about Paris, but uh, it may not be clear to everybody 
what exactly happened in Paris and, and what the next steps are, which, which sets the uh, context for the Marrakesh conference. So in Paris, um, we agreed on a number of things. Um, and each of these elements was, uh, I think, in very large measure driven by the uh, policies of the United States and the, the diplomacy efforts of the United States. Um, a lot of the framing for that uh, had happened in uh, long-standing bipartisan conversations that happened in Congress and in past administrations, both Democratic and Republican. Uh, I'm a civil servant. I've worked uh, under both Bush administration, the Clinton administration, and the Obama administration. And while I think much is made in the media of the changes in policies that happen between administrations, there are certain tenets that tend to be uh, fairly uh, consistent over time uh, in America. Um, one of those is the need for transparency, uh, the importance of countries being transparent in the actions that they undertake um, and in their emissions in, in this context. Um, the Paris Agreement succeeded in doing what we failed uh, to do in previous agreements, which was to create a transparency framework uh, in which all countries uh, would be reporting transparently on their actions and on their results. Um, and we had further conversations about that in Marrakesh, which I'll get to in a second. Um, the second and obviously critical piece uh, is action by all countries. And the Paris Agreement set in place uh, a framework in which all countries are expected to take actions to reduce their emissions. And the, uh, those actions uh, will depend on the circumstances of the country. So you wouldn't expect, for example, the same thing uh, from Bangladesh, a desperately poor country, as you would expect from, say, Mexico or Chile, uh, one of the wealthier uh, emerging countries. Um, and that gets to the third element of Paris that was so critical, that the uh, commitments that countries make to reduce their emissions are nationally determined. Each country determines for itself uh, what it can do uh, to reduce emissions. And that basket, uh, that, that broader context was really essential in sealing uh, the deal in Paris. Um, so just to repeat, over the, over the last year, something quite extraordinary happened, which is that in, uh, in record time, we had uh, the, we met the threshold for the number of countries that needed to ratify the Paris Agreement for it to come into force. Uh, and it came into force basically the day before the Marrakesh Climate Conference began. Um, and that was in large measure the result of uh, a US uh, encouragement to other countries to take this thing seriously uh, and to push forward. As a result of that, it pushed the timelines anticipated in Paris forward substantially as well. Uh, so in Paris, we agreed on a number of timelines for things that were to be done by 2020. Uh, and all of those got advanced by two years um, as a result of this very rapid uh, entry into force of the Paris Agreement. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, so let me... Uh, just get into the Marrakesh conference. I think, um, you know, I've done a lot of these negotiations over the last 15 or 16 years, and each negotiation has a different feel to it. Um, Paris obviously, you know, had a lot of publicity, the Klieg lights and, and everything else. Uh, uh, Marrakesh didn't have that same uh, international publicity, uh, but what it did have was a, a feeling that was very different from previous conferences. And that was that countries were getting down to work with the business of implementation. Um, that there was a very serious and sober sense uh, in countries all around the world uh, that uh, Paris was done and that they were moving forward with uh, following through on the commitments that they made in Paris, even though it was only a year later. Um, there was also substantial momentum that uh, came through in the private sector uh, in terms of the commitments they made um, which I'll also talk about uh, in just a minute. Um, so first to the negotiations, uh, which is ostensibly what we come to these conferences to do. Um, uh, but in reality, I think, I think the bulk of the work was, in, was outside the negotiations in the implementation space. 
but some of the nuts and bolts. Uh, so because the agreement entered into force, there is now a new body uh, called the CMA, um, and that's an acronym for an exceedingly long uh, set of words that isn't really important, but it is the body that will be implementing the Paris Agreement, the CMA. Um, and that body met for the first time in Marrakesh, again, several years ahead of schedule. And what it did was decide to uh, put in place a work plan for all of the guidelines that are necessary to uh, give meaning to the Paris Agreement. Paris agreed in very broad scope uh, a number of things, which I articulated before in terms of transparency and emissions reductions, etc. But the details need to be worked out. And what Marrakesh did was set in place a process by which those details would be negotiated. Uh, so next year, in 2017, this CMA, this body, will take stock of where we stand uh, with a view to reaching agreement on these guidelines by 2018. Um, this is an exceedingly quick timeline. Just to put this in context, uh, when I first started uh, in the negotiations uh, in 2001, at the first Marrakesh Climate Conference, uh, countries, not including the United States, were putting in place a rule book for the Kyoto Protocol, how to elaborate all of the things that the Kyoto Protocol had agreed four years ago. So they had four years to do it, and it was very difficult to do in that time frame. We have two years uh, to do what I would suggest is probably a more complicated and difficult uh, plan of work. Cent a central focus for us, as I mentioned, is, has been transparency. Uh, and the transparency guidelines are something that we'll be working to articulate over the next two years. Um, fortunately, we co-chair the transparency negotiations um, uh, which I think will help us to guide them in the right direction. Um, one thing I will say, which is actually quite remarkable given the politics around this issue for decades in the past, is that countries um, across the spectrum were willing to sit down and get to work with the substance of the transparency negotiations. They left a lot of the very difficult politics behind. Um, and that really is a milestone uh, that I, for one, uh, did not anticipate coming into Marrakesh. So they've agreed on a very intensive process over the next two years to try to articulate these transparency guidelines, which will be fundamental for our understanding of what countries will do, and in our view, transparency drives action. Uh, transparency drives action in a couple of ways. One, it helps the country itself understand where it can reduce emissions. If you can't measure it, you can't address it, and that's true uh, not just in climate change, but in, in corporate and, and governance everywhere. Uh, and secondly, it helps because the world uh, will understand clearly what countries are doing and where they are failing to live up uh, to their commitments. And that peer pressure uh, will be extremely important in driving progress. Um, so those are a couple of things that happen in Marrakesh in the negotiation space. And if people are interested in specifics, I'm happy to, to get into any of that. Um, one thing in terms of the, the politics of the negotiations, in terms of the negotiating dynamics that was very important, is what did not happen in Marrakesh. Um, it is a truism of the climate negotiations, for those of you who have uh, been in this space, that after every big, important meeting where a lot of progress is made, there is a really nasty, difficult meeting that immediately follows it. And the reason for this is that when you get heads of state and ministers together, they don't always agree on what their staff want them to agree on. And so those staff then busily try to roll all of those agreements back as much as they can to a space that they're comfortable with in the subsequent meeting. And that did not happen uh, in Marrakesh, at least not to the extent that it usually does and that we would have anticipated coming in uh, that it would have. Um, there were a number of countries that did make a push for this. Uh, Paris, as I mentioned, applies to all countries, um, and that is really a fundamental breakthrough in the approach to climate change. Uh, and a number of countries tried to revisit that. They tried to reintroduce what we call bifurcation, the, the notion that developed countries should act and developing countries should basically be left alone to do what they want to do, uh, or to get finance for, for anything that they do. Um, and what was remarkable is that uh, that set of countries was relatively small, and there was substantial pushback 
on them by other developing countries who felt that this was quite important, uh, what we had agreed in Paris, and that they wanted to move forward with it. Uh, so ultimately, they were not successful. Uh, this, is, this is really uh, quite substantial because it means that, that the momentum is quite clearly moving in the right direction in the international context. Uh, a second thing that was important happened in Marrakesh, which was uh, the discussions outside the formal negotiating context. Uh, and here it's very difficult to characterize everything that happened because there were about 500 events in which uh, private sector, subnational um, NGO participants made announcements. Um, but uh, there were a few important announcements uh, which indicate the serious with, seriousness with which uh, various entities and stakeholders are taking this issue. Uh, one was an announcement of a half billion dollar blended finance facility. And by blended, I mean uh, it was a private investment vehicle uh, that focused on adaptation and resilience that blended concessional public finance with private investment to help the poorest and most vulnerable developing countries uh, improve their resilience. And this is really quite important because uh, we've had a lot of conversations, uh, again pushed by the U.S., uh, on the importance of getting private sector finance mobilized by setting in place the right policies and, and context at the domestic level, but that's been for mitigation, that's been for emissions reductions, it hasn't been for helping countries to improve their resilience, which has been a very difficult space to think about what the private sector profit incentive is there. And this is one of the first efforts uh, to try to do that, um, so that's quite significant. Uh, Europe also announced uh, in Marrakesh a 4 billion euro European fund for sustainable development. Um, also enormously significant. Uh, it, it's sort of indicative of the scope of these conversations that um, these announcements of half-billion-dollar and multi-billion-dollar funds get a little bit lost in the noise uh, of the broader negotiations. But in any other context, uh, these would be, would be absolutely enormous. Um, and actually, this wasn't in Marrakesh, but it was uh, brought on by an announcement that was made in Paris, and it's a follow-on to it. Bill Gates actually just, I think, a couple of hours ago uh, announced uh, an uh, intention to work with 20 other investors around the world to invest $1 billion in innovative technology at all stages of the technology spectrum, from early stage finance to uh, dissemination and deployment. Uh, working across a range of sectors. Uh, and this is supposed to uh, work with the nexus of mission innovation, which was uh, a very important announcement in Paris um, by a number of developed countries to double their research and development uh, in innovative technologies. Both of these are intended to develop the next stage of uh, technology innovation to help um, drive costs down in the future. Uh, so those are some of the, the announcements that, that took place uh, in the margins of the negotiation. Um, but I think more importantly than that, I want to talk about the state of play of implementation efforts um, from countries around the world. Um, I think coming out of Paris, uh, there was a sense that countries' commitments were, in many cases, in 2030. That's 15 years away. It's an awful long time. They might think about it for five or ten years and then and then do something. And what we've been finding is that uh, in many cases that isn't true. Uh, the countries are taking these commitments incredibly seriously and they are working very hard at home to figure out how to put in place policies, regulations, uh, actions, um, uh, and attract private sector investment to help them uh, meet the commitments that they made in Paris. So um, this really is quite remarkable for the transition because what it means is that not only did we achieve on paper in Paris the notion that all countries should be taking action, but that countries are taking those paper commitments seriously uh, and they're moving it home uh, toward domestic uh, implementation. Let me just give uh, one example using renewable energy and there are a number of other examples that could also be given. Um, in the, the renewable energy space, there are a number of um, developing or emerging countries 
who have put in place innovative policies to attract private finance at the least cost for their public resources. Um, these have been done um, in a number of ways, but most prominently through what are called reverse auctions. That is an auction that, that awards uh, the contract to the lowest price bidder. And this is a, a very important mechanism because it drives the cost down very significantly for renewable energy in these countries. Um, so let me just give a, a listing of, of countries. And it's, it's remarkable both for the countries and for the breadth of geographic representation. Uh, Morocco, the host of the conference, uh, Jordan, UAE, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia. So a lot of countries in Maghreb, Middle East, uh, are aggressively pursuing these policies. Uh, you have South America, Argentina, Uruguay, Chile in particular. Uh, Central America, uh, in North America, you have Mexico um, and, and others. Uh, and then some of the big guys, India, Brazil, and South Africa, all have competitive auctions. Um, and what you're seeing is that these auctions in recent cases are producing world-beating prices. Um, in, in many cases, the prices are beating fossil fuel uh, development in those countries. So um, in the UAE, they had uh, just under $0.03 cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, in Chile, 2.9 cents for solar power uh, per kilowatt hour, uh, and in Mexico, 2.69 cents again for solar power. So these are really prices that are unfathomable, maybe four or five years ago, absolutely beyond comprehension. Uh, and yet, this is this is where the the leading edge of, of this conversation is now. Um, Mexico in particular, I'd, I'd highlight, is a really good example of what we can do with targeted foreign assistance. Uh, about half a million dollars uh, went into uh, working with Mexico um, through uh, the program that we manage uh, and run out of uh, the Agency for International Development to help them design this auction and do some of the selection and all of that. A half a million dollars ended up um, getting enormous investment in renewable energy at, at fantastically low prices. So if we are smart about how we are targeting our public resources, we can really catalyze substantial private sector investment. Um, so that's very exciting. Um, and not everybody can get prices like, like Mexico can. Um, you know, Scandinavia, for example, not a great place for solar power. But um, this really is... Um, it's an exciting turn because I've often said in the history of the negotiations that there's a very fractious dynamic um, because countries are fighting over who has to reduce their emissions. But when the cost point starts to change, as we are starting to see, starting to see now, those dynamics start to shift and it no longer becomes a fight over who has to do what. It starts to become a race based on a desire to develop technology and a desire to uh, participate in that marker. Market, So that, that is a, a game changer for us. Um, of course, there are a lot of challenges that remain. I don't want to sugarcoat uh, the, the problems that we face going forward. Um, the emissions are not coming down as fast as they need to. There remain a lot of areas where, where action is not as cheap uh, as in the renewable energy space and the central latitudes. Uh, there are still a lot of countries that are resistant to taking the kinds of actions that, that we think that they should take. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a, obviously a question about what happens uh, to U.S. action in the, in the next administration, which I imagine there'll be a lot of questions that I can't answer. Um, uh, but so the, the space really is um, reflective of, of both substantial momentum, a, a major change from Paris to today, uh, and also, you know, some uncertainty. Uh, about uh, what it looks like going forward. So maybe I'll uh, stop there and we can spend a little bit more time on questions. Okay, great. Thanks, Christopher. Um, let's open it up for your questions and have a discussion. If you could identify yourself. Okay, go ahead. Uh, Bill Brandon. I, I know there was uh, some African countries came together on food security in relationship to China climate change. Can you comment on what's happening there? Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I, that was one of the 500 announcements that I, I might have missed. Um, uh, so if you want to, if you have any more information about it, I'm happy to look into it and, and give you an answer. But that 
there, there has been a conversation around the linkages between food security and climate change, with climate change obviously in Africa being a substantial driver of insecurity given changes in precipitation patterns. Um, but I don't know the specifics of what the African countries announced in Marrakesh. I'm sorry. Okay, over here. Uh, Laurie Timmerman, uh, what is the status of uh, Red Plus at the state? Um, yeah, it's a very good question. So Red Plus was um, uh, reducing emissions for uh, deforestation and degradation um, of forests, um, particularly in developing countries, was a concept that was agreed uh, well, actually at the Canadian COP uh, about 11 or 12 years ago. And that was agreed in the context of actions that take place before 2020. Um, it has occupied a little bit less of a prominent space in the conversation for the kinds of actions that are taken post-2020 uh, in the Paris context, not because it's any less important, but because uh, now there is a framework for uh, actions that countries need to take domestically, and they will be determining the makeup of those actions, what they're doing through the land sector in the forest space or in agriculture, what they're doing in the power production space, etc. Um, but I think the commitment remains on behalf of uh, a lot of donor countries to help uh, countries who are interested in preserving their forests uh, to do so going forward the specifics of that have yet to be laid out, and this is a, one of a number of issues that will be uh, articulated with greater detail over the next couple of years. Does uh, Do actions to protect forests uh, qualify for um, inclusion in a market mechanism uh, in the Paris Agreement? That's an open question. Uh, are there pay-for-performance agreements that... Uh, by which a developed country would pay a developing country not for the idea of protecting the forest, but for actually the results that they come forward with over years um, to, to protect their forest. Those are all open questions, and all of these mechanisms remain open to countries, but it wasn't, it wasn't articulated in the same way that it has been in the past. Okay, back here. Um, you said that uh, the COP21 domestic policies, which the rest of the world watches very intently, uh, and for U.S. international engagement, where um, particularly over the last four years or so, the U.S. has been the undisputed leader uh, on this issue in the international context. Um, and there were questions about if the U.S. were not to continue to play that role, uh, both at home and internationally, um, what did that mean for the international negotiations and who would step into that? Role and you saw China essentially be um, put forward in that uh, context, um, and um, you know they didn't they didn't push back on the notion that they would um, potentially be looked to for some mantle of leadership. Of course, having China as opposed to the United States play a leadership role on this issue raises some questions about the consistency of their priorities with our own domestic priorities. So it's. I think it's a space to watch. Um, the second thing I would say about that is that um, there was a sense that, um, that this has been set into motion and that um, the election cycles of any particular country, even a country as important as the United States, uh, were not going to derail um, the rest of the countries from moving forward with what they had committed to do. So it did interject some uncertainty into the conversation, to be very candid. Um, but I think what we also heard from partners around the world was that they, had in, they would intend to carry on with what they were doing, um, irrespective, and that they would hope the U.S. would continue to engage. Okay, so we'll question here, and then we'll take two over there. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't quite sure where you um, 
approach to reforestation, and I'm asking, was that part of Marrakesh agreement? I'm thinking of Kenya or any other mm -hmm. place. Not just to lower the emissions, but to build farms. I mean, is, is that in there, so to speak? Yeah, so um, everything is in there, yeah. um, to be quite clear. I think um, the Paris Agreement was at a very broad level, and it didn't get into the level of specificity that we've had before, and that's what the next couple of years are for. Um, but what we did in Paris and what we um, moved forward with in Marrakesh was the concept that every country determines what their priorities are and that there will be support for countries who need it to accomplish those priorities um, and that there will be guidelines for countries to follow in ensuring that those actions are, are meaningful and transparent. And that includes reforestation, it includes avoiding deforestation, it includes a lot of different actions in the land sector. So yeah, I, I, but they haven't been articulated in the same level of details before. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the, there's been, uh, the price point for green energy has gone down because of technological improvements. Was there any discussion or concern that that might create a paradox in which more energy is used because it's cheaper? Um, I didn't. I didn't see that. I mean, you know, you do see in um, both economic literature and, and you know, in reality, when things get cheaper, when gas gets cheaper, people buy cars that use more gas, um, etc. So uh, that's certainly a factor. But I think for a lot of countries, uh, the challenge is not energy oversupply right now; it's undersupply. And for a lot of the countries where uh, these policies are being implemented, I'll say India uh, for one, South Africa for another, um, but, but a lot of countries, um, they are facing problems providing enough electricity to their citizens to prevent blackouts or they just don't have access, access to electricity at all. Um, and this is sort of helping them uh, move forward with their objectives to electrify their country uh, at the lowest cost. Um, there are other countries where they are electrified, and here uh, Morocco is a good example. Uh, they have pretty robust, although not 100% electrification, but they have a very serious energy security issue. Um, I think I might have this slightly wrong, but I think 98% of their energy is imported in Morocco. That is an enormous energy security challenge in that region. <coughs> And so they are looking at uh, renewable energy as a uh, domestic resource for them uh, that will help them both electrify areas that, that don't have sufficient electricity supply, but also to address what to them is a much more meaningful challenge of energy security. So, you know, in situations like the United States, um, I think that question may have a little bit more meaning, but for a lot of these countries, um, they're not worried about uh, an increase in, in electricity supply um, or demand. I would just also mention that with regard to your example of Morocco, you would, in that kind of an extreme case, that's also a lot of their currency that is flowing out of country, which means that it's not available for local economic development. So it's really holding the country back in many, many ways. And that would be true for a lot of places, particularly like countries in the Caribbean or in the yeah. Pacific. Yeah. Um, there's a one question over here, and then we'll come back over here. Okay, go ahead. My name is Sarah Spangman, and I work for Catholic Climate Covenant. I've heard different things. I've heard that the process, formal process for withdrawal is, withdrawal is four years. I've heard that it could be done in as quickly as a year. Could you just clarify what the process is for possibly withdrawing from the Paris Agreement? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think there. this is a complicated legal conversation. There are a couple of options for dealing um, with the commitments under Paris. Um, one is simply changing the target, right? Because um, the target was non-binding uh, that we put forward, 26 to 28% reduction by 2025. That was a nationally determined uh, target. Uh, we needed to put forward a target, but the actual number itself is, is not legally binding. So in terms of uh, options to change the target, there is no time frame. The, uh, if, if there was a desire to do that, it could be done uh, very quickly. Uh, a second option is pulling out of the Paris Agreement, uh, and there uh, it is essentially uh, four years. Um, it takes three years to withdraw 
uh, after the treaty has entered into force, which was just a few weeks ago. Uh, and then uh, it takes a year for withdrawal to take effect. So in some four years from November 4th uh, of this year. Um, the third option is withdrawing from the Framework Convention on Climate Change, uh, and uh, there it would uh, take one year uh, to do because the entry into force provision that applies for Paris because it just entered into force is long ago in history for the Framework Convention, so it's just one year. So that may be where the confusion is. If you withdraw from the framework, then you are withdrawing from Paris. That's right, because the Paris Agreement is uh, under the Framework Convention in a legal sense. Yeah. Okay. Floyd. Yeah, uh, Floyd, you should have some kind of a question again. Uh, for the 1.5 degree target, um, can you offer any comments around any discussions uh, to meet the target around negative emissions or carbon, uh, or climate intervention in discussion amongst Yeah, um, so there um, were, there have been really no conversations in the negotiations or sort of in the broader um, milieu of the negotiations about climate intervention, by, by which, you know, generally we mean geoengineering. So um, putting putting things in the atmosphere to reflect sunlight or um, uh, carbon capture and storage by uh, burning biomass and sequestering the carbon dioxide just for sort of the broader, broader group. Um, that really hasn't been part of the conversation. Uh, folks are focused on reducing emissions and increasing resilience right now. Um, there was a conversation uh, about uh, how we look beyond the 2025 and 2030 targets under the Paris Agreement toward what happens in mid-century. Uh, and the U.S., uh, together with Canada and Mexico, put forward its mid-century strategy, uh, which was a non-binding effort to explore pathways that might get us to deep reductions in emissions by 2050. Um, this wasn't to put forward a new target or anything, but in the context of of that strategy, uh, there is an assumption that there has to be some carbon capture and storage for this to be able to work cost-effectively. You can't do it all with renewable energy. You need a lot of renewable energy, you need nuclear, and then you need uh, carbon capture and storage, either with fossil fuel generation or with biomass. Um, but the biomass plus carbon capture and storage is not a technology that has been tested at scale so far. So it, it occurs in all of the literature because that's really the only way to solve the equation to get you down uh, to that the emissions levels that you need to see given current technology right now. But it isn't uh, something that is you know, in the wings as, a, as an immediate-term technology option. Um, but the intent of these um, mid-century strategies is to get people thinking about what kinds of technology options do we need to have our, at our disposal in 15 or 20 years? Because you would, um, if you're looking down the long term, you, you would take a slightly different path in the medium term in terms of technology choices uh, than if you're always just looking five or 10 years in front of you. And so it was an effort to, to broaden out that conversation. Uh, but there's been no negotiation or anything like that on, on those issues. <clears throat> um, Mr. Trump has said that one of the things that concerns him about the Paris Agreement and these negotiations is that it may put the United States at a disadvantage um, com uh, competitively with other countries. Could you comment on that and its uh, interpretation of what's going on and how it might affect the relationships between the countries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... At the, at the heart of the disagreements between countries uh, on who should take what actions to reduce their emissions that we've had for the last 25 years has been uh, this economic fear that uh, taking action when your neighbor or your trade partner doesn't exposes you to competitive disadvantage. And that's been one of the issues that's really gridlocked um, these negotiations for a long time. Um, the, um, the Paris Agreement actually addresses that issue uh, in a way, I think, that is 
um, much stronger than has been dealt with in previous iterations by um, requiring that all countries take actions to reduce their emissions. Um, and that there's transparency around those actions so you can see for yourself whether you're a government representative or a private sector representative or, or a private citizen, uh, how you would evaluate the uh, seriousness with which countries are following through on their commitments. And also, by the way, uh, you can evaluate um, how strong you think countries' commitments are in the first instance and whether, whether they are, in fact, adequate or whether there's an imbalance that would create uh, trade distortion between countries. Uh, and there have been a number of um, non-governmental organizations that have done exactly that kind of analysis and ranked countries by uh, the stringency of their emissions targets. And I think a lot of folks will be paying attention over the years um, to see if countries are following through with what they said that they would do. So I think that was a it was an innovation from Paris. Now, you know, just because you put it on a piece of paper doesn't mean that it will happen. There's a lot of work that needs to happen over the coming years and decades to make sure that you don't get these kinds of competitive trade distortions. But I think, you know, in the first instance, the way that that you've gone about trying to address that is ensuring that there's transparency and that countries are acting and not through the reverse lens of trying to impose some kind of trade sanctions on countries for a failure to act, um, because that has much broader ramifications that I think nobody wants to contemplate at this stage. Okay. Other? Other? Okay, go ahead. Um, Emma Locatelli, Senator Udall's office. To follow up on just your last point, um, has there been any talk that if the U.S. does withdraw from Paris that we will actually have economic sanctions imposed on us for not following through with our agreement? In terms of yeah. Worrying Yes, there's a lot of talk. Um, there's a lot of talk about everything. I, I, I think this is a, a this is a time of profound uncertainty uh, uh, on this issue as as with others, and I, I think a lot of um, a lot of folks are trying to anticipate uh, what might happen in the event that the next administration decides to do X or Y. Um, I think that sober heads um, have felt that it's premature to speculate on what policies the next administration will or will not take and what kind of uh, actions would be appropriate um, to, um, to respond to the, that approach. So I think for the most part, countries are in a wait-and-see mode right now um, to um, understand better what the incoming administration intends to do once it has a chance to take a look at... Um, its policy options and figure out where its priorities stand. Um, but you know, one of the things that we tried to convey in uh, Marrakesh was um, a little bit of the 101 of U.S. government, which a lot of countries don't understand because they have parliamentary democracies which function in a way that's much different from ours. Um, and you know, tried to help them understand that the um, policies that a administration contemplates in the election phase or in the transition phase are not always the policies that end up getting implemented once uh, a administration is faced with the complexities of governing uh, a country with this diverse set of views as America. So um, we encourage countries not to, to jump to conclusions and to, you know, to reach out and, and see you know, how we can move forward in the spirit of collaboration, but we'll see how things unfold. Hi, I'm Dean Scott, uh, reporter with Bloomberg via Day here in DC. Um, I'm wondering, you were around probably during um, the tail end, maybe of the Bush administration, or during those years of negotiation. And I'm sort of I'm interested in the way in which they conducted those negotiations in terms of uh, still actively being involved in the UN framework, um, whether it was to obstruct some people saw as progress or not, they were at that table. I'm wondering if you see any indication that we are uh, going to return, A, to the, the structure they used for that. They didn't have like a special envoy like Todd Stern and his successor. Right. Um, they, they managed it quite differently. And also, um, if the administration, the current administration, is making 
the case or other issues that are at the table at, at those framework convention talks that deserve our, our continued involvement? Um, okay, so that, that was a lot of questions. Let me see if I can try to, try to get each of them. Um, so uh, I was uh, on the negotiating team for, for all eight years of the Bush administration, um, and I was uh, one of the people at the microphone representing the administration for that time. So um, I think that uh, it is fair to say that the, um, the policy and the approach of the Bush administration changed fairly significantly over those eight years, um, just as the, the approach of the Obama administration evolved. Uh, over the last eight years as well. Um, when, uh, and this, this speaks to the point of not prejudging an administration when it comes in, uh, for those of us with long memories, uh, you know, when, when Bush came in in terms of the campaign platform, uh, there was a fourth pollutant bill uh, that they supported, and the fourth pollutant was carbon. Uh, so, and then in the process of determining their positions, uh, they decided that three pollutants would be better than four, and carbon fell away. Um, and uh, I think Shortly thereafter, they decided to repudiate our participation in the Kyoto Protocol with a fairly um, sort of decisive, non-consultative approach. And uh, I think that they were uh, surprised by the depth of uh, uh, our allies' um, concern about that approach. Um, you know, I think. The, they were surprised that uh, the, their withdrawal from the Kyoto Protocol had fairly serious foreign policy implications for them beyond the climate change space. And they saw that for a number of years to follow, where the first question from many interlocutors was, for years, why did you reject the Kyoto Protocol? Um, and so uh, over the course of uh, years, they... Uh, felt the need to articulate their own positive vision for uh, how these climate negotiations should be constructed. And um, I think they moved to a posture which uh, is probably familiar to, to many in the room where they insisted that developing countries needed to take action and that transparency needed to apply to everyone and that we couldn't uh, return to a Kyoto model where the targets were determined in a top-down negotiation and countries had to apply them, that each country had to determine its targets. And these are familiar because these are some of the same basic tenets that were carried forward in the Obama administration uh, through negotiations until the Paris Agreement. Um, so, you know, I think... Uh, those folks who were very senior in the Bush administration will see reflected in the Paris Agreement a lot of the vision that they had articulated uh, when they were in office under Bush. So um, I think that's not broadly uh, probably understood, um, but there were some of the same priorities, excuse me, uh, expressed across the years there. Um, in terms of the structure, you know, I honestly have no idea uh, how the new administration uh, will structure things, if there will be an envoy or if they will choose some other kind of structural arrangement to, to lead in the climate talks. Um, you know, the landing team at the State Department is, is just now starting to look at a lot of these broader structural questions, and they haven't yet gotten to that specific question. Um, I think I understood your third question to be about uh, our interlocutors uh, abroad and how they might engage with the next administration. Is that, is that right? Well, the degree to which other, you, you touched on this a bit, but the, the degree to which other issues come up in the UN Framework Convention negotiations, uh, Jonathan Pershing talked about this in Morocco, about uh, there's everything from human rights to trade, issues that aren't, they're, they're not necessarily, don't have climate change as a label, but they're in broader interest to the United States, not just focused on the climate issue. I... I'm not sure I'm exactly understanding the question, but yes, there are... You uh, know, are you making that case to the, to the incoming administration that, that, that it's in the U.S. interest to have a seat at the table for those issues? We haven't had conversations with the transition team yet at the State Department, so we haven't made any case to them uh, just yet. Thanks. Um, I also wanted to ask whether at Morocco there was 
any discussion of the uh, of the of the other conference with regard to the Montreal Protocol and in terms of the phase out of HFCs and whether that ended up in, in terms of thinking about overall implementation plans, how these things, which while that's a separate um, was handled separately, but it's still very, very closely related and can make a huge impact with regard to um, keeping that temperature level right. down. And I was wondering if you could make any comment on that. And also, how that <coughs> relates to, will this uh, coalition that had been started through the State Department in terms of the clean air and what's it called? Climate the clean air coalition. coalition. Yes, and and what its status is. Sure. Um, so the um, the negotiations that happened in Kigali uh, around a phase down for HFCs, a highly potent uh, greenhouse gas discussed in the context of the Montreal Protocol negotiations, uh, were, um, I think, successful um, beyond anybody's contemplation going in. It was really quite a remarkable meeting. Um, it, uh, I think, helped with the sense of momentum and inevitability that uh, permeated the Marrakesh talks um, because there were a number of substantial uh, accomplishments that were uh, reflected throughout the course of the year uh, that indicated the seriousness with which not only the United States but also a broad range of countries uh, treated this and related issues and were looking for opportunities to address them in a cost-effective way. Um, that said, there wasn't any formal discussion of, uh, of the Kigali uh, agreement in Marrakesh because it was done. Um, you know, one thing that I would mention there, uh, like in Marrakesh, there was very strong private sector engagement in that conversation, uh, and a lot of American companies felt uh, strongly that that agreement was uh, going to be both good for uh, reducing emissions, but also uh, was something that they would be very happy to implement uh, at home. Um, this uh, agreement was was quite substantial. It's, it's important because not because it will reduce emissions in an absolute sense, but that there was a trajectory that was headed inexorably upward, and it helps to make sure that that trend uh, will not continue because uh, if you look toward 2050, it's quite important to keep uh, the non-carbon emissions relatively low, although it's it's uh, quite difficult to eliminate them all. But this is a, this is a really uh, important, easy win, uh, and we got it done. Uh, on the CCAC, the Climate and Clean Air Coalition, this focuses on what we call short-lived climate pollutants like HFCs, like methane, and others. It's really focused on a very pragmatic set of actions that all countries can take uh, to reduce their emissions consistent with their broader uh, aspirations for, for development and economic growth. So you can reduce methane emissions in a way that's very cost-effective because methane's gas and you can burn gas. So it's not very economically useful to be letting gas go into the atmosphere that you can, you can burn to provide power uh, for your people. Uh, so I think there's, there's a lot of win-win there. Um, uh, what happens to the future of the Climate and Clean Air Coalition in terms of U.S. participation is not uh, obviously clear to me. I can't speak to that. But I think there is uh, enough interest in this from our international partners, both countries and uh, companies and NGOs, that that will continue. Okay, that's what I was curious about in terms of because since black carbon soot is an important yeah. piece of that, and who would you see as some of the leaders going forward? In, and I've lost track of how many countries are part of that coalition. Is it about 30 or? I, I've also lost track. Okay. I think it's in the 40s. 40s. And I, I think, although don't quote me on this, I think Canada has, has been playing a leadership role. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I, I haven't personally been to those okay. negotiations since the Paris uh, yeah. talks started. Um, would you comment on um, a recent thing that's come out about the transition team, uh, Mr. Trump's transition team, uh, requesting that anybody um, who has been uh, active in COPS 21 and 22 um, join, uh, be put on a list uh, of people who are involved in, in climate change activities? 
Is this a concern? Is there any pushback about it? Or is it, uh, can it even be done at this stage? I, yeah, I mean, I, I can't really comment on it because all I know about it is uh, what I've read in news reports, the same as you, so I, I don't really have any insight to offer on that question. I'm sorry. And I think that request, my under, our understanding is that that request went to the Department of Energy, not to the Department of State, and so I, it's going to be very interesting to watch how that all plays out, and I think there are a lot of people watching it very, very closely. Okay. Any other burning questions? Emma? Yeah, one more. Um, so in the Clean Air Act Section 115, which gives the U.S. or the EPA power to implement uh, emission reduction regardless of whether or not uh, they're given permission or if there's a specific action, is that a way forward if, in fact, the um, Trump administration does decide to withdraw from Paris? Is, is that a way to still try to be involved in global climate change action? I, well, look, I mean, I, I just can't speculate what the next administration's going to want to do. Obviously, Section 115 potentially pro provides pretty broad legal authority um, for action, but uh, whether and how that's taken up, I think, is very much anybody's guess. Um, you know, I think it's, it's important to note that um, there are a number of policy tools at any administration's disposal. And there are various ways of getting at the same problem. And uh, you know, again, without prejudging what the next administration intends to do, uh, I think there are a number of, uh, of policies and regulations that have been implemented in this administration that I would find uh, unlikely that a future administration would intend to roll back because they have such broad support, including in the, the affected industry base. Um, and there are others where it's, it's just a really big open question. Um, but you know, I would note that the congressional tax credits uh, passed here uh, in the renewable energy space have um, provided a, a major boon to that industry. And you know, roughly in terms of the numbers I've seen, uh, you know, carry forward uh, essentially the the electricity generation uh, in the same direction that the clean power plan had envisioned until probably 2023-2024. Uh, so again, various different ways of, of addressing this consistent with different political priorities and philosophies. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm Pichon, President of Angel's Office. Um, one of the things I think I'm interested in, I think a lot of people are, is paint a picture of the Paris Agreement with absent the U.S. Um, in the next couple of years, whether it is going to happen or not. Um, you kind of mentioned China stepping into that leadership role. Is there any other implications you can see from that? Well, um, look, it, it's, it's very hard to speculate on these things, and I don't, I don't know that the next administration intends to withdraw from Paris or... Uh, you know, if they did, as I, as I articulated in, in response to the question about time frames, uh, you know, there are a number of ways of uh, addressing concerns uh, related to competitiveness or the link between domestic action and international commitments, and withdrawal is only one of those possibilities. So I wouldn't want to give the impression that uh, the next administration has made any kind of decision on that matter or to pre presume that we... Uh, no, based on, on press reports. Um, I think that um, you know, one of the uh, things that is important from uh, my experience in, in the Bush administration that folks might not be aware of is that you know, the top line uh, conversation was very different uh, between the administrations, but there remained a lot of fundamental American priorities that we continue to negotiate. Uh, irrespective of those broader views. Um, you know, how the transparency regime worked is, is one. Uh, conversations around the international market mechanisms, emissions trading is another. A lot of these nuts and bolts uh, conversations will continue uh, in the future. And I, you know, I think that there, uh, there is a strong uh, rationale for continued American engagement in those conversations to ensure uh, that U.S. national interests are protected. Uh, and, you know, frankly, 
I, you know, the U.S. has a substantial amount of expertise and vision uh, that it brings to these negotiations, and um, we play a pretty fundamental role in, in terms of defining the architecture and the realm of the possibility. So uh, I would be, um, I guess I would be surprised if that was uh, completely pulled back from. If, if, if that were the case, uh, obviously other countries would step in. And in response to the question about uh, China and others, um, their interests may not be consistent with our own. Um, so I'll leave folks to draw their own conclusions from that. On that final note, um, I would like you to join me in thanking Crystal for coming. And then please feel free to follow up if you've got other questions or whatever that you would like us to forward to him um, or to his, his office, and we're happy to do that. Thank you all very, very much for coming. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Crystal. Absolutely. Thanks for coming, and thanks for your questions. Thank you.